going to be in Acts chapter 5 this afternoon. Uh, pray with me if you would. Let's ask for the Lord's help and blessing as we read, preach, hear, and apply. Father, we do come. We know that what needs to happen in the next 50 minutes is a work of your spirit. Things need to take place that we are, humanly speaking, unable to do, although you call us all to participate and engage in this wonderful gift of preaching your word. So bless it, Lord. Your words, their life, their spirit, they fill us, they fuel us, they instruct us, they rebuke us, they challenge us, they encourage us. And so today, speak to our hearts. I pray that each heart would be open wide with ears to hear what your spirit has to say, eyes to see what your spirit would show us this afternoon. And most of all, Lord, we pray that your words would have the proper effect on each of our lives so that we would leave this place changed, different from how we came in. Encouraged by your word, changed by your word. So have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you notice this, sometimes when you read your Bible, you may come across statements that, that certainly seem and appear to be contradictory. The Bible says one thing, and then another time might say something else, and it feels like, oh, that feels like a contradiction. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Isaiah chapter 2, there is a prophecy about beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. It's a prophecy, a promise about upcoming peace. So we have weapons of war, which we will no longer need, and we'll beat those weapons of war into tools of trade and tools of farming, tools that are just needed for a time of peace. There's a promised peace and an end to fighting. But then in Joel, there's another prophecy, proclaim this among nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, look, uh, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a warrior. So there's also a time to fight. Jesus made a promise to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But there was another time in Matthew 10 where he says, well, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. You feel in the contradiction between those statements. They seem to say quite the opposite. No, we have become convinced and believe something firmly about God's word, that while there are many authors, there is ultimately one author. They've all come from the very mouth of God, the spirit of God, and they cannot, in reality, contradict themselves. They come from one source, a source of truth, a God who never lies. And so there is some explanation as to why two statements that seem opposite can both be true. The explanation might come in a couple ways. Each word was giving at a, given at a specific time, in a specific context. There's a time for peace, and there's a time for fighting. There's another component that there's a certain kind of peace and a certain 
kind of fighting that is often talked about in Scripture. And when we come to the last days, as we're studying in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is the beginning of what the Bible refers to as the last days. The last days is a, a phrase the Scripture used to describe the time in history in between the first and second comings of Jesus. So from his resurrection and his ascension until the time that he returns to take his church, his bride, home with him, that era is referred to as the last days. And during that era of the church, which the book of Acts is about and the times that you and I are currently in include, is that there is both a promised peace and a needed fight. And our text this afternoon brings this out in bright, loud, vivid colors. Our text in Acts chapter 5 is an account about a situation where the church knew great peace and a great fight at the same time. And it is extremely helpful and needed instruction that Acts chapter 5 gives to us this afternoon because if our expectation is for peace and no fight, when the fight comes, we'll be disillusioned, unprepared for that reality. On the other hand, if we grasp only the fight and know nothing of the peace, then our testimony is false and we will not know what we're fighting for. Acts chapter 5 can help remind us of the peace we have and the fight we must fight. Okay, let's read a familiar but fascinating account beginning in verse 12 of Acts chapter 5. We've got a long text. should be up on your screen. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple 
and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The title of the message this afternoon is, We Will Not Be Silent. We Will Not Be Silent. I think that's a song from Aladdin. A little bit different message than Aladdin gave you. We will not be silent. This account is in many ways very similar to previous accounts in the book of Acts. And we will read more that are similar to this. But, but now this one is unique in that there is even more intensity making this simple point that when the gospel advances, so does the opposition. When our gospel of peace is proclaimed and advancing, so does the fight. So does the opposition. So does the resistance. We need to be reminded that our gospel of peace is worth fighting for. 
if we think all is peace and all you're expecting is peace, the fight will disillusion you, surprise you. You'll be unprepared for it. You won't engage in it. But the reality is, as we work together, as a local church, as Christians, as followers of Christ, to advance the gospel of peace, the fight against it will intensify. We are bringing a message into a kind of opposition and darkness that is easily agitated with what we're bringing and disruptive by what we're bringing. And it will stir up opposition. Let me break down the story with a few headings. And the first one is the expanding power. We're looking at why this story in particular is kind of accentuating. It's taking a similar theme that we've been reading about but it's adding color, it's adding loudness, it's, it's adding more drama to the situation in order to press in on this very point. The pattern that we've seen in Acts so far is just continuing. God's power, Christ preached, people added to the church. Okay, this is the rhythm, Acts chapter 2. God's spirit is poured out. There's this grand demonstration of God's power is on display in Acts chapter 2. The power is on display. Then Peter stands up and preaches, and he preaches Christ. So while you see the power of God displayed, and everybody's wondering and awestruck and perplexed by what they see, then comes the proclamation, and Peter stands up and preaches. What you've just seen is all about Jesus. Let me give you the lens you need to understand the power of God that you've just observed. It's that Christ is the Lord. This is what Christ is doing. Then we get to Acts chapter 3, and we've got the lame man was miraculously healed, undeniable, and everybody knows him, and everybody sees it, and everybody is perplexed and awestruck. How can this thing be? So they see an expression of the power of God, and then Peter again stands up and proclaims, and he says, it's because of Christ. It's Jesus that made this man well. Oh, the Jesus that you crucified, but God raised. And again, he preaches Christ. And we get this rhythm. God's power expressed. Christ is proclaimed. And people are added to the church. But in Acts chapter 3 with the layman, we inserted another component, opposition, persecution. And now we're getting another story that is following that same pattern, but now the opposition is intensified. It's meant to instruct us, prepare us, make us ready to realize, I hope by God's grace, the end of this message will be all the more convinced not to remain silent. Jesus is worth speaking about. It is worth speaking about. His name and telling people the truth about who he is, even when the opposition is intimidating. And this is what Acts chapter 5 wants to instill in our hearts a kind of courage, a kind of readiness, a kind of boldness. So now we see in our text the power of God is increasing and spreading. Many signs and wonders done by the apostles, it says. Signs and wonders, supernatural displays of God's power the direct and point attention to the Lord. Things that make you wonder. Do you remember the terms? They're, they were perplexed. They were amazed. They were awestruck. They're seeing God's power at work. These signs and wonders. You cannot help but notice them. And they make you wonder. 
They make you wonder, what is this all about? These terms, signs and wonders, had their origin referring to the Exodus. I'd like to read you a couple verses from Deuteronomy that kind of explain, give you a context, and show you, in a sense, how God uses signs and wonders and to what end. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 32, 32 through 35, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, and by an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other beside him. God has been intervening supernaturally. Signs and wonders were taking place, striking awe and perplexity in all the observers, primed and ready to receive. And then he calls his church, now it's time, stand up. And speak about Jesus. And Peter takes the point in our beginning of Acts. This seems to be an expansion of the miracles taking place. So much so, okay, now um, let's just line up on the sidewalk because I think Peter's going to come walking by. Maybe his shadow will touch me. And people are being gathered from cities beyond Jerusalem and coming in and they're being healed. Well, this is the strategy. This is the plan from Acts 1.8. This thing is going to begin in Jerusalem, and it's, be go it's going to expand. It's going to move out. It's going to touch the nearby, and then the not-so-nearby, and then the far away. That's the strategy. That's the book of contents for the book of Acts. And now we begin to see it. Oh, now people from the neighboring towns around Jerusalem. Okay, it's expanding. It's not one miracle. It's all kinds of miracles. It's lots of signs and wonders by all the hands of the apostles. All kinds of people are getting healed. Massive amounts of miracles and spreading beyond the power of God. The expressions of the power of God are increasing and moving out. So we see things are going exactly according to plan. Things are expanding. But as the power of God increases and the gospel expands, so does the opposition. Point number two, increasing opposition. We have expanding power, but we also have increasing opposition. The trouble begins by saying the high priest and those with them were filled with jealousy envy 
This is a dangerous thing in the heart. This is sort of the root and how it started. This is the cause of all the trouble that goes from here, and it keeps getting more intense, but it is a starting point of jealousy. James warns us, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, oh, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. You see, James is laying, this is kind of a root problem. This is kind of a core sin in the heart of a person, this jealousy. Jealousy, as it's used here, like, like envy, is this is root sin that consumes the heart, blinds us to the truth. It is a sin that is birthed in the foolishness of comparison. The Bible tells us it's not wise to compare yourself with others because of this very thing, because our hearts gravitate towards this kind of envy, always making comparison. They have more money. They have better vacations. They drive a nicer car. Their family seems happier. And that foolishness of comparison stirs up something inside of us that makes us dissatisfied. And that grows, then we want ill to come to them. It's not even that we want what they have. We don't want them to have what they have. I don't like it that you have more than me. And even if I had more than you, I would still, I would have a problem with what you have. It's like this thing working in our heart. It's, it's challenging and it's convicting to our own souls. But this text, let's not forget this text is wanting to prepare us to face this in those that oppose the gospel. They are opposing the apostles because they are jealous. The apostles are at this point being held in high esteem. The high priest and his band of Sadducees, these are the influencers. These are the people that are supposed to be in control. These are the influencers in society. And now all of a sudden these apostles are coming forward and they're being held in high esteem. They seem to have what the high priest and the Sadducees want to have. That's what they're supposed to have. They're supposed to be held in high esteem. And now... They're not. C.S. Lewis, in the Screwtape Letters, he writes about jealousy. He says this. He says, we must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives with the deadly, serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Friends, when this gets a hold of your soul, when this begins to emerge in our hearts, and it does often, it is a constant temptation. James is very candid with us. Look ahead to every kind of disorder and every vile practice. This thing in our heart only goes one way. And James predicts it for us. So we watch it close. But again, our point here is to be ready for those that oppose us that are operating with this in their heart. There's two ways that this account that we read together helps us face 
this kind of rage. First of all, God exposes the foolishness of opposing him. He makes them look like fools by sending an angel and letting the guys out of prison and saying, just go back to the temple and continue preaching. So they get up the next morning. They're going to have their trial. And, okay, where's your prisoner? Oh, they're not in prison. Where did they go? We don't know where they went. Oh, look, lo and behold, there they are, right back where they were when you told them to stop and where you arrested them. So now we have these bumbling keystone cops trying to arrest the apostles, and God intervenes by having a little fun with them, playing a little joke on them, making the fools look like fools. God shows such power over all things that guards and prison doors are no obstacle for him. This is what you and I need to grasp and realize and really have in our hearts that the Lord can do whatever he pleases. Peter and John can sing in prison, and we'll come to that later. Or they can preach in the temple courts either way. God is the only one with the ultimate power to bring anything about that he desires. He alone is ultimately in control of all things. Man cannot stop him. His purposes will prevail. He orchestrates an account in Acts chapter 5 to assure us that when we are being opposed, when there's problems, when we're being resisted, when there's jealous rage against us, don't worry. Don't worry. The Lord is able. The Lord has power over it all. You do not need to be intimidated. So God exposes the foolishness of the fools. And secondly, God raises up a voice of reason. Enter Gamaliel. Respected man, teacher, well-versed, and he checks them with a history lesson. He persuades them with the simple point that if God is not in this, it won't last. But beware, if God is in it, there's not a thing you can do to stop it. In fact, beware. Don't let yourself be found opposing God himself. Friends, Gamaliel shows up and Luke records it to bolster our faith, to stir up courage in our hearts with this simple truth. If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, you could answer that question. Well, a lot of people could be against you. A lot of people are against you. More people will be against you. If God can be for us, who can be against us? Well, a lot. But the phrase means, and this story tells us, it really doesn't matter who or how many are against you if God is for you. It's the contrast. It's not saying that nobody will oppose you. That's the point of the story. Somebody will. But if the Lord is with you, it's nothing. He can make fools out of them. He can play a joke on them. It doesn't matter if you're locked in prison. There is no obstacle that is beyond God's ability to rescue, to orchestrate a plan for his glory. 
with that encouragement, with that bolstered faith and courage in our souls, we can focus on being faithful and true to the Lord and trust him to bring about his desired plan. The story gives us expanded power. It gives us increasing opposition, but the result is a faithful church. Third point, faithful church. This is the point of the text, to equip us not to go silent, not to keep our mouths shut, that when the opportunity is there to speak the truth about who Jesus is, that we not pull back from our mission when opposition increases because when the gospel advances, the opposition will as well. Now, how are we going to respond? It's the evidence of a church remaining faithful when the going gets tough. The text gives us a few keys here. First is insistent obedience. We must obey God rather than men. That's the contrast. Opposition. Stop speaking in his name. Stop saying that. Stop saying Jesus. Stop telling us we crucified him. Stop telling us God raised him from the dead. Stop talking about Jesus. And their response, we have to obey God. We cannot not do what God has called us to do. Friends, obedience to God is one of the truest pieces of evidence of genuine saving faith in our hearts. Regeneration, becoming a Christian, coming to Christ, being in Christ, it comes with an innate desire to obey the Lord. It is the proof that faith is genuine, active, alive. My wife Tamara and I are beginner bread makers. And we're working on it. And one of the things you do when you make bread is you proof it. You proof the yeast when you start. And so you take your yeast, you put it in a bowl, and you add some warm water, and you let it sit. It begins to proof. The yeast is alive. You come back in 10, 15 minutes. You see in this bowl this beautiful, bubbly, frothy, foamy yeast that is active and alive, and it's, and it's, and it's growing. And when you see that, you know it's alive. We're, we're, we're good to proceed. We've, we've got active yeast to make this bread with. But if you let that sit and you come back and all you got is this brown water, this ugly, dirty, still inactive bit of brown water in your bowl, that means it's dead. Maybe you killed it. Maybe your water was 120 degrees and you killed it. Maybe you had old yeast that couldn't come alive, couldn't be activated anywhere. One way or another, you know. You know whether it's alive or whether it's dead. The Christian life 
that has no real sense of desire to obey the Lord is like a dead bowl of yeast. It's not alive. You, you don't have the reality in your soul. The reality comes with that desire, that compunction, that push within your soul that produces a statement like Peter made, but we must obey God rather than men. Certainly, none of us are saved by our obedience. Nevertheless, God's saving grace activates obedience in our hearts, just like the warm water activates that yeast in the bowl, and it comes alive, and it begins to take action, and it begins to grow. And it's when our obedience to God is contrasted with obeying man, or the words of man, or the commands of man, when there's a conflict there, and our obedience to God emerges predominant, then our witness for him is even more pronounced. Christian obedience creates a testimony for the gospel. All the time, regardless, big or small, in whatever way, your obedience, our obedience to the Lord produces a testimony, a witness of the gospel of grace. Even more so when our obedience comes at a cost, when our obedience takes place under threat of harm, opposition, resistance, and when there's still that determination that says, but I must, regardless, it doesn't matter how much it costs me or how much it hurts me. I'm, it's, I just have it inside. I still have to do what God told us to do. Then the testimony becomes acute and pronounced and glorious. Well, they heard their spiel. They listened to Gamaliel. They beat them which I find reads kind of funny. It's almost like it didn't really matter. Did, does that, did it strike you a little bit odd? It's, I feel like it's kind of like what we say, well, you got dragged into court and you got a slap on the wrist and they let you go, which to us means maybe the judge said some kind of stern words to you. Now, don't you ever do that again? And they let you go. You just got a slap on the wrist, no fine, no prison time, no nothing. And here it describes it almost like that. Well, they took him outside and they beat him and then they let him go. imagine lacerated back pain bleeding sore embarrassed maybe maybe not so much because of the context the point is everyone watching could see their faith in action and could witness the real evidence of what was in their hearts when they said we'll obey God rather than men, regardless of the cost. Friends, today, it might be unlikely for most of us to face prison time for our obedience to the Lord. I suppose we can thank God for that. That certainly could change in our lifetime. Nevertheless, saints can I encourage you never to underestimate 
the power of the witness of our obedience to God. Never underestimate the power of the witness, the testimony that comes when the people of God are devoted to obeying the Lord. Whether it's simply gathering regularly for worship, serving, giving in a local church, caring for neighbors, but of course, ultimately, what we're talking about and what seems to be the focus here in our text is speaking faithfully about the truth of who Jesus is, what he's done. That's at the real crux of this message and this chapter and what's being provoked and stirred up and encouraged in the hearts of God people, God's people. Don't go silent. Another thing that was accentuating their testimony, which was an evidence here of their faithfulness to the Lord, was their rejoicing in their suffering. They rejoiced at the idea that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There is suffering in our lives that takes on many forms, and many of you experience a variety of kinds and forms of suffering. And and the scriptures inform and instruct us in all kinds of responses to suffering and tell us ways that we can respond to suffering in ways that will honor the Lord and create a testimony of God's grace. But here we have a particular kind of suffering. It's the result of being faithful to the gospel, faithful to proclaim Christ. And here the apostles respond with a unique combination of humility and honor and devotion. One commentator wrote, a beautiful antithesis, the honor to be dishonored, the grace to be disgraced. Knowing Christ and witnessing Christ in his sufferings surely fueled their courage and their joy. They were in a situation that just maybe a few months prior to this, they watched Jesus walk through it successfully. They watched them beat Jesus. They watched the mock trial. They listened to the false accusations. They watched Jesus respond to it faithfully. They watched him beat him. They watched them crucify him. But they also saw God raise him from the dead. They've got the whole picture now in their hearts. They know how this works. They know how God works in and through these sufferings. There's suffering and there's resurrection. So now they're emboldened and now they're in very similar situations, standing before this court. And this court, they're not messing around. They, they could do some real harm. Put them out of the temple. Change their lives forever. Beat them. Kill them. They wanted to kill them. They could have found a way. Eventually, they do for most of the apostles. The other response of faithfulness, and of course this is really getting at the heart of the text, they never cease to proclaim. Verse 42 the last verse that we read in our text is really the key summary statement of what this story is all about. And every day, 
every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is actually somewhat similar to the very last verse in the book of Acts. This is a, a, a theme. This is the summary statement. This is like where this book wants to leave you and me. So the whole thing, all the stories, all the accounts, all the instruction wants to so bolster your faith and encourage you in the midst of all kinds of opposition that it doesn't matter because the proclamation of the peace of God in Christ Jesus is better, is more important, and it's worth fighting for. And so regardless of what happens, it wants to leave us all and leave us as a church, Sovereign Grace Church here in Pasadena, to leave us at a place where we will not stop proclaiming we will not stop telling people about this grace of God in Christ Jesus this is the desired outcome the end game for the book of Acts if we get this in our hearts we find in our soul genuinely determined I am not going to go silent I will not be silenced. The message is too good. The message is too powerful. The Lord being with us is too promising and too great. Altogether, it adds up to we must obey God rather than men. Well, I'm near the end. Worship team, you could come on up. Let me talk some application. Could I just ask you the simple question, is there anything keeping us from faithfully proclaiming who Jesus is? After looking at this story, reading the story, grasping the essence of the story, seeing how God responded, how God provided, is there something keeping us? Have we lost sight of the promise of peace? The message of peace that we've lost our fight? Have we thought it was supposed to be all peace and not simultaneously a fight because the message we bring is breaking in to a dark world with hardened hearts? Is it that all we see are the obstacles? Does the fight dismay us? Does the opposition scare us? Are the voices intimidating? Do we feel threatened? Are we, have we become so comfortable that anything that threatens some disruption to our peaceful lives, our comfortable peaceful lives, has got to be wrong, has got to be a no? Is that what it takes to silence us? I hope not. It should not. It cannot. What can we do? God is calling us. God is calling us to speak. He, is, he displays his power. And then it's our turn. God moves. God changed your life. He worked in power in your life. Okay, your turn. Tell us why. Tell us what happened. Explain the change in your life. Explain what Christ did for you. Stand up, speak up, 
Don't be silent. With what God is calling us to do, what can we do? Friends, we can pray. We can pray. We can pray for God's power to be on display more and more. We can pray for wonderful miracles. We can pray for people to be healed. We can pray for boldness in our hearts to proclaim so that we can be faithful and bold and glad and joyful speaking about who Jesus is. Secondly, we can engage and we can stay engaged. In our local church, a large part of the gospel testimony is who we are corporately together, this group in this room, and all who are members, all that have joined, all that are participating, we are creating a testimony as a group. This is not merely an individual issue. This is all of us together. We are, we are creating a testimony. How each member participates, engages, serves, gives. Each Sunday, each, each Sunday something is being said. So, come early. Come early. Come ready. Engage. Sing. Stand. Be loud. Clap. Worship. Love. Serve. Find a place to serve. Get involved. Get engaged. Give supply that, the, that there's not a, a shortfall, that we, we have what we need to do, what God's called us to do. And whatever you find to do, it might be different next year, but whatever. Find a position, play your position. Play it with all your might. Play it with your whole soul. Whether you're a greeter at the door, on the worship team, on the soundboard, in children's ministry, it does. whatever it is, find a place. Get in that position and play that position with your whole heart. Why? Because every component, everything together, it's creating a testimony. Can you imagine what it's like to go visit a church and everybody's late and everybody's listless and nobody's engaged and nobody's happy and nobody's talking and nobody's serving? Okay, there's not you. Granted, you guys are great, but you understand my point. You understand what I'm saying and you know, you can see how even not a huge effort on every member's part can create a testimony that has an effect. It is, in reality, an expression of the power of God. Power of God on display. And then what do we do? Our turn to stand up and speak. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what Jesus did. Oh, the Jesus that you and I crucified. The Jesus that God raised from the dead. He's alive and well. And he's changed my life. He's changed your life. And he's formed this congregation. And he's doing something by his spirit. And it's glorious. Pray for, look for, even create opportunities to speak what is true, what is right, what is real about Jesus. You know, friends, so much... So many things in the Christian life could be better done in heaven. Your sanctification, just like that. Get in Jesus' presence. Take one look at his face. You're, you're changed. No more sin. I mean, it's beautiful.
beautiful. Your sanctification is easy in heaven. Worship, struggle with worship, get in heaven, no problem, done, fixed. Best worshiper ever. There's one thing that we won't be able to do then that we're called to do now. And that's talk to the people that don't know Jesus about Jesus. There's a reason why Jesus delays his coming. There's a reason why we're left here when so much could be made right by simply taking us to heaven immediately. And yet he does not. Because there's a plan and a purpose for us while we're still here. To seek and save the lost. To see God's power on display. To stand up and proclaim and see people added to the church. We can only do this now while we're here. And it's precisely what we've been called to participate in. So make some room in your life for others. Let's find ways to engage. Let's create opportunities for that. Of all the intensity increasing in chapter 5, it's all meant to leave us with one compelling impulse to keep proclaiming Jesus and to insist to have it fixed in our hearts. We will not be silent. Let's stand together.